0: Support for this show is brought to you by our friends at Bloomerang. Bloomerang offers donor management and online fundraising software that helps small to medium nonprofits like First Tee of Greater Akron, a nonprofit empowering kids and teens through the game of golf.
1: After just one year with Bloomerang, they doubled their unique donors, improved donor stewardship, and raised more funds. To listen to the full interview of First Tee of Greater Akron, visit bloomerang.com weareforgood or click the link in our show notes.
0: So welcome to the good community. We're nonprofit professionals, philanthropists, world changers, and rabid fans who are striving to bring a little more goodness into the world.
1: So let's get started. Becky, can you believe this is happening?
0: Okay. It took about nine months to to nail (laughs) down this interview, but I just, I want to tone set a little before I introduce our guest, friends, listeners you're in for a treat today. And I want you to come into this conversation with open heart, open mind, because we have put an emphasis this season on really focusing in on what our guest calls the criminal punishment system. And we are doing a hyper-focus on what happens to human beings who are incarcerated, who are wrongfully incarcerated, what happens to the disconnection of humanity, and how we can all like step in and play a role to make this systemic issue so much better. And so I got to take everybody back. We were in Denver last... September with the Stand Together Foundation, and we were watching, you know, these catalysts. Um, speeches go down. And I know we've talked about this in the podcast in the past, but if you're new to this, it's just an incredible time for organizations to literally take the stage and tell their story. And it happens within 10 minutes. And I guarantee you, there is not a dry eye in the house by the time these individuals are done. And we're sitting there and this gentleman walks up to the front of the stage and his name is Mark Howard. And he's got so many dang titles. He's like professor of government at Georgia. He's the founder and president of the Frederick Douglass Project for Justice. He's author. He is a prison educator. He's dad. He's all of these things. And he tells us this story and our hearts just open up. And it's about what would happen if we looked at human beings in prison as human beings and we created relationships and we listened to their authentic story. And so after he did his incredible speech, A friend that you have come to know and love well on this podcast, J.J. Velasquez, who was part of our Good Humans Week, steps up and talks about his wrongful incarceration for 23 years. And if you have not heard that episode, please go back. It's episode 365. It will change your heart and mind. And so today I want you to just listen to Mark. I want you to think about the role that you have to play in this issue. And we're finally going to get into it. So thanks for your patience, Mark. (laughs) But let me introduce you because Mark is truly one of the country's leading voices and advocates for restoring humanity back into the American criminal punishment system. But Mark Howard, welcome to the We Are For Good podcast. Get in here and awaken our minds and our hearts because we want to be inspired today.
2: Thank you so much, Becky and John. It's great to be here with you.
0: Well, I, I want to back it up. I want to back it up before we talk about all your work in this legal system. Like, we want to get to know little Mark. You know, I didn't even say <laughs> you speak four languages. Like, you are well-traveled. You are someone that gets people. And so take us back to little Mark. Talk about where you grew up and what led you into this work.
2: <laughs> little Mark. Well, in a way, actually, the entire story starts with lovey-dovey preschool. <laughs>
0: So oh my Mark, gosh, I love this.
2: Little Mark and Little Marty, who were born nine days apart and grew up in Port Jefferson, New York on Long Island, went to the same preschool, Lovey Dovey, and then elementary, middle school, and high school. And it's a very uh, safe, quaint community on the North Shore of Long Island, not much crime, not an enormously affluent community, but certainly a, a privileged area, a very safe. Uh, place to grow up as a kid. As you said, I'm also half French. So I grew up a lot in France. I spent every summer in France with my grandparents. I speak French as a native language, spoken at home with my parents. It's a big part of my life. You would never hear it just from hearing me talk, but I'll mention that since you're asking about little Mark.
0: Excellent.
2: Love it. (laughs) And so the big sort of twist in the story comes from the first day of our senior year of high school when something happened to Marty's parents. But before I get to that, I just want to mention something else that's really important that I don't always talk about publicly, but I have sometimes, and I'll I'll mention it here, which is that when I was 13 years old and I was with my traveling soccer team, spending two weeks in the UK playing soccer against British teams, I got arrested. And I ended up spending the day in jail. They were threatening us and it was me and one other uh teammate that we would have to stay overnight and we were able to to talk our way out and go meet up with the rest of our team this was of course in a pre cell phone era so it was hard to reach people i just knew where our meeting point was and uh i was treated you know i don't want to say inhumanely but it was pretty harsh i mean as a 13 year old kid it was pretty terrifying and it was for shoplifting and i ended up having a juvenile criminal record in the uk that i was told would be there till i was 18 And I was actually banned for life from HMV music stores. Unfortunately, they don't exist anymore. So I got the last one on that one. Yeah. But the reason why I tell the story is that I don't want to sort of overstate the extent of my own criminality. I was a kid. I was doing a lot of stupid things. I was experimenting with things and pushing limits and and testing boundaries and so on. Um, But it is something that now that I go inside of prisons all the time, that I always think back to that 13-year-old mark, because a lot of times people who end up in prison had a moment like that, had a mistake, a peer pressure situation, but then it comes to define them. Of course, I was very lucky that it didn't come to define me. There might have been some reasons it was in the UK. I didn't go back until I was over 18. And there's always been a part of me that is always a little bit weird about going there, knowing that that record existed and maybe still exists. They were really very threatening about it. But When I go inside, I look at people and I say, I see myself in them. And that's important, I think, for this larger question about our common humanity, which is that we all go through phases in life. We all make mistakes of different kinds, different levels. But I don't ever put myself above anyone else. And when I go into carceral spaces like I do basically every week, if not several times a week, I never judge because in a way I see some of myself in other people there. So that's kind of almost like a a precursor to the real pivot in the story. But the the foundational moment that has really come to define the rest of my life, although I didn't fully appreciate it at the time, how it would change me, but it goes back to when I was 17 years old. So we're still in little Mark phase, but bigger Mark, um, (laughs) but still a child. And on the first day of our senior year of high school, my childhood friend, Marty Tanklett, who, like I said, we went to lovey-dovey and all the schools together. Marty woke up that day. Remember, first day, senior year of high school. That's a day of excitement. You pick out yes. your clothes. It's the end of the summer. You're seniors, right? You're, you're at the top of the food chain. It's just an incredibly exhilarating day for, for countless people around the country every year. Well, Marty wakes up, finds his parents murdered in their own house wakes up to a horrific crime scene and not only that making that worse in, in addition to being orphaned he winds up being accused and then later ultimately convicted and sentenced to 50 years to life in prison for the murder of his parents oh mark and when this happened i remember it very well I had driver's ed that day, first day, and we actually got into a car and we're driving around and we went by the house because the driver's ed teacher had had Marty previously and knew Marty. We were all worried. Everything was okay. We're worried for him. We heard something happen. We didn't know what we were thinking. We hope he's okay. And I, I remember driving by, seeing the yellow tape and it was a crime scene. And we realized, wow, this is really serious. This is something horrible that just happened. But we never thought he could somehow be involved. We were just worried for him, and. Over the the you know by the end of that day he was in handcuffs, charged. I started investigating it as a budding reporter, and I was the editor in chief of the Purple Parrot, which was our high school newspaper. Love it! <laughs> My gosh, I don't know what our circulation was—probably barely over a hundred. <laughs> and you know, I look back on the reporting I did, and I'm really proud because I actually got the story right, which was that Marty was innocent. And there was a lot of suspicious behavior around his father's business partner. And we later learned that he had hired hitmen to kill Marty's parents and most likely paid off a police detective to frame Marty. But at the time, you know, I was a 17-year-old, just like Marty. He got railroaded. No one listened to me. The prosecutors and the mainstream media ran with these lies and this ridiculous motives about how Marty would kill his parents because... He was upset because he didn't like the car that they were letting him drive. It was a crummy old Lincoln, supposedly. They had got a mechanic to testify, saying he'd had an argument with his dad, saying, I don't want to drive that piece of shit. Am I allowed to say that, by the way? Sure. real. <laughs> <laughs> All right, because then you're going to get the real me if profanity is allowed here. Oh,
0: uh, <laughs> <laughs> we want the real you. Real Marty. Okay. Yeah. Bring
2: him. So when Marty was convicted, I mean, it was a helpless feeling, especially, you know, it was a long time ago. I was a kid, I was moving on with my life and the way Marty likes to tell people is Mark went to Yale, I went to jail and we lost touch. Our lives went in very different, you know, almost opposite directions, you could say. And I was able to get, you know, an extraordinary education, which opened a lot of doors. I then, uh, after spending a year living in Berlin, I went, went on to graduate school, got my master's and PhD at UC Berkeley, just another phenomenal institution. And then I was uh, fortunate to be hired at Georgetown University as a professor of political science. I was working on European politics, a lot on post-communist Europe. My dissertation, which became my first book, dealt with the challenges of democracy in post-communist Europe. I then wrote another book that dealt with immigration, and citizenship in Western Europe. I was basically an academic, a political scientist, working on European politics. I was doing nothing that had to do with the U.S., nothing that had to do with the criminal justice, legal punishment system. And I was doing well. I got tenure very quickly, early, uh, was promoted, became full professor, was you know doing well, loved my teaching, was passionate about what I was doing. But I had something that was eating away at me for all those years, which was that my childhood friend was in prison for something he didn't do. and after a while of feeling helpless and just resigned to, well, I'm going to live my life. Something then led me to reach out to Marty and we started correspondence. I have like a shoebox full of letters from prison from him. We were writing back and forth. I started helping him. I started getting involved. You know, when you're in prison, you're helpless. There's no internet. There's no way to do research. There's a law library that has a lot of limitations I started doing things for him. And even though I was a professor, I had my own student research assistants. I became Marty's research assistant. Mm. And our friendship became incredibly strong. And then I started visiting him and repeatedly, and I discovered uh, a, a man at that point. We were in our in our early to mid-30s, and someone who had blossomed into just an extraordinary person who was resilient, who was Passionate, who was interested and engaging. And we would have these great conversations. And then one day in that prison visiting room, something led me to say to him, I'm going to do everything I can to help get you out of prison. And I made the decision I'm going to go to law school to get my friend out. And that was a a huge decision. I was able to do that through Georgetown, where as a professor, you can actually. Um, get an education for free. Um, Most people do it for like a, an, you know, Italian class before a summer trip or something. Um, But I was the first one ever to get a law degree as a professor. So literally simultaneously, I was teaching classes, taking classes. I would walk in, I was so exhausted. I'd walk into a room and be like, wait, do I go up to the front and start lecturing now? Or do I go sit in the back and hope I don't get called up? So that was a crazy few years. But the great news is that Marty was ultimately exonerated. I played a role in that. Amazing. There are there many other people and, and, and lawyers who were involved, but uh, we were able to help get Marty out of prison. He spent almost 18 years for a crime he didn't commit. You know, lost his parents. Uh, it's, uh, it's it's a level of 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 suffering that's just yes. hard to imagine, right? Losing all of that, but at the same time, through his pain through his experience, through his journey and ultimately celebration and triumph, I was able to get access to get exposed to a level of both inhumanity in terms of a system that could make such mistakes and, and be content and complacent with that when I find it just outrageous and unacceptable, but then also a level of humanity to, to persevere the worst of conditions and to come out whole on the other side. And so that opened up a whole other world that we can talk about too. My
1: I mean, Mark, gosh. what a story, you know, and this is our second time getting to hear this and it's, it still gut punches me the same way. I mean, thinking about Marty, thinking about those years. Um, but I just, there's a definitive moment in your life when you decided you had the kind of path before you of which you're going to go down and you chose this harder path Because you just had this vision of what would be possible, you know, if we could center the human in this that's often inhumane in so many aspects of kind of how our society and culture builds this up. So I wonder if you'd take us back because, I mean, you've now created the Frederick Douglass Project that is all about instilling this idea of humanity to the average person, to the person like me in the middle of Oklahoma that's never set foot in a prison and has a lot of preconceived ideas about people that may be in there, just through our own experience, need that. I mean, what, what was that connective point between Marty's story and saying, okay, how do I take this experience to the masses so we can change this?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Cause I, in a way, John, I keep a foot in two worlds that are sometimes, or at least For some people, contradictory, but to me, they blend together in a beautiful way. And one world is the wrongful convictions. Marty's case is a clear example of it. He and I also work together and have created a program at Georgetown, which is now expanding to other universities where undergraduate students reinvestigate cases of wrongful conviction. We've helped five people get out of prison. We've walked five people out of prison with oh our gosh, students.
0: So oh, my gosh. I'm so proud of a total of
2: 134 years for crimes they didn't commit. And there's nothing more beautiful and powerful than that moment.
0: Thank you. Truly, thank you. thank you to your team. I mean, I think that gives all of us a little bit of ease. We're not comfortable at all, but it gives us hope. It gives yeah, us hope. Yeah.
2: And we have, we have more coming. Um, there are so many wrongful convictions in this country, and I think that everybody intuitively can agree that it is wrong. It's morally wrong for somebody to be in prison for something that they didn't do. Sometimes there can be mistakes made. But a lot of times there's misconduct made and that occurs repeatedly. And then there's a system that's hellbent on keeping the door shut and not correcting mistakes. So that's one foot, if you will, of mine that's in this world, that's deeply invested in getting wrongfully convicted people out of prison. So it started with Marty and now we do it together and the five people we've helped get out and the more to come. And I, and I'm so passionate about that work. And I know that it speaks to people because everyone can agree, but I also, and so this is really important. The other foot is in another world, which is in prisons overall with all incarcerated people, regardless of innocence or guilt. And I've been fortunate through my journey, which again, started with Marty. That's always the beginning point. It's my North Star. It's just my my sort of foundational moment that I always refer back to. But I've also gone beyond that because as I've started to spend time in prisons, and it first was in visiting Marty in the prison visiting room and I would look around and I would see people and I would feel the suffering of families as they would be with a loved one who was in a condition that is simply unimaginable in its cruelty. American prisons, and I've discovered this in my research and published a book called Unusually Cruel, Prisons, Punishment, and the Real American Exceptionalism that explores American prisons in comparison to other countries, other advanced democracies. And our conditions are so dehumanizing and debilitating for people that I I think we need to, to change it and to learn from other countries and to implement a better system. But it was through that experience of visiting Marty that I first had a window onto that. And I also started to look around and see people with their families and realizing that there was more to them than their crime. There was more to them than their sentence, that there was a bigger kind of patchwork of people, of family, of a community who love them. And if you think about it, if somebody close to you committed a crime and even an awful crime that you that you absolutely abhor and that you wished had never happened and could any in any way undo, you would still love that person. If this is your brother, your sister, your child, you would still love them. And so what I, as I felt that, and I guess I have a strong sense of empathy and I was in that room and I just was looking around at this misery and suffering and we'd be waiting in line outside in the cold before the visit and then coming in and seeing people embrace in such sorrow and sadness. And of course, I'm also thinking about victims of crime and the suffering that's involved there. But I started wondering to myself, is this really a productive solution? Is, is suffering to punish suffering healing? And I don't think so. And so I started then going more and more frequently inside of prisons. I started volunteering as a professor in a maximum security prison in Maryland. And this was initially just because i wanted to see more i wanted to engage more it was it was my visits were always kind of uh, you know very limited in terms of contact and when i started teaching i discovered a classroom full of of just wonderful people and i know that this is paradoxical because these are people who have harmed others and i never want to minimize that i never want to forget that but there are also people who have grown and who have changed who are capable of a lot more. Most of those crimes were committed when they were young, very young in many cases. Sometimes, you know, as young as I was when I was first arrested, more or less. And and then uh, certainly at the time of uh, in high school when I got close to this issue for the first time through Marty. And I started to see something in them, see a potential that I thought the rest of the country, the world needed to see. And so that led me to start a program, first an education program, which I did through Georgetown. So after volunteering for a long time for a nonprofit organization, going in for many years into Maryland prisons and just absolutely loving the experience. Sometimes I would bring my Georgetown students inside. I was teaching the same class on the inside that I was at Georgetown. And I was like, they're just as capable. They're just as smart. They might've dropped out of school in eighth grade and gone to prison at 17 and gotten their GED at 25, but maybe they're 40 now, but they're, they're smart and they're, they're engaged. And it was such a wonderful teaching environment. And then when I brought the Georgetown students in, it was like magic. This just explosion of humanity and of compassion and of caring and love that the rest of the country never gets to experience. And so I wanted to, to scale that. And I remember in particular, when one of my students from Georgetown came inside And we had this incredible session and she said out loud, if only the rest of the country could be in this room with us right now, we would no longer have mass incarceration. And those words just stuck with me. And I kind of ruminated on that. How can I get the rest of the country to come inside? Obviously, it's not going to be possible in this room, but maybe in a lot of different rooms, maybe over time, maybe spread out throughout the country. I could get people to come in and experience the magic because however much somebody might get moved, hearing me talk about it. It's a hundred times more powerful when you go in yourself, when you see it and you feel it, you sit across from somebody and you recognize their humanity and you see that they're no different than we are. Yes. They made mistakes. I, I always want to be clear that I'm not erasing or forgetting those mistakes, but They've paid a steep price. They continue to pay a yes. steep price and they will come home. 95% of incarcerated people will come home. That's a fact. And wouldn't it be in all of our best interest if they came home having been educated, having been socialized in a positive way, being prepared, really being in a place where when they come out, they'll never go back and they'll never go back to crime. We'll have fewer victims. We'll have fewer incarceration costs. I mean, we spend $85 billion a year in this country on incarceration. It's maddening. It it makes absolutely no sense. You could spend a tiny fraction of that in prevention and in programs in prison, and you would not have incarceration. There are a lot of vested interests that don't want that to happen, of course, because that money's going somewhere. But in terms of a society, in terms of public safety, and that's what I care about. I care about public safety right? So I'm not a prison abolitionist. I'm not saying let everybody out. I don't want crime to happen. I want all of us to live in a society where crime will not take place. I think that when somebody is hurting other people, when they are dangerous, I think they should be separated from society. But I think they should be separated in a way that is humane, so allows them to have like basic protection, which is not the case in many American prisons, And also a place where it allows them to grow and to realize that there's another possible life for them. And so I feel like I'm talking too much and need to let you guide the conversation, but at core, there's a deep level of humanity. And I mean, and I know this sounds strange and some people might bristle at it, but there's some extraordinary people in prison who've made mistakes, but who are desperate for an opportunity to show their humanity and show that they're ready to reenter society. And if we give them that voice, that platform, that opportunity, that preparation, they're not only going to not go back to crime, but they're going to succeed. They're going to thrive. They're going to be role models. They're going to help inspire kids from going down that path.
0: Taking a quick pause from today's episode to thank our sponsor, who also happens to be one of our favorite companies, Virtuous. You know we believe everyone matters, and we've witnessed the greatest philanthropic movements happen when you both see and activate donors at every level, and Virtuous is the platform to help you do just that. It's so much more than a nonprofit CRM. Virtuous helps charities reimagine generosity through responsive fundraising, volunteer management, and online giving. And we love it because this approach builds trust and loyalty through personalized engagement. Sounds like Virtuous might be a fit for your organization? Learn more today at Virtuous.org or follow the link in our show notes. Mark, I have so many thoughts, so many questions. But I I think we need to hold space for just a second and take a look at what you've done. Like, take a step back. You did not build just another nonprofit. You did not play by the playbook. You went directly to where we talk about the solutions always are, which is in the community who is most affected by the problem. And you listened. And I, and we are a massive proponent of story on this podcast because we know that information is received 20 times better if it is threaded through story. And I thank you for bringing up the concept of empathy because the two values that are hitting me so hard in this conversation are empathy and justice. And if you believe like we do and our, our, our core value of this company, the first one is that everyone matters. Mm-hmm. And if you can accept and believe that everyone matters and you can reject judgment and cancel culture, I mean, I look back to the last three years, we are all on a journey of learning. Unlearning and discovery, and it starts by asking someone to share their story. And so, I just want to hold court and thank you for the disruptive way that you have gone in and looked at humanity. And I, and I, and I want to keep this on the Frederick Douglass um, project. I want to keep this focused, but I have to share this story really quickly. I know someone that was wrongfully incarcerated, and he was my boss, and he was a nonprofit executive director. And he served time in a federal prison for a crime he did not commit. And these are human beings. And I learned what it was like for a human being that I loved to be in prison. Someone that I knew, someone who I consider one of us, you know, on the lines of nonprofit. And so, listener, I know this topic is heavy, but we have to have these hard conversations because there are human beings out there who need our advocacy. They need our support. They need our listening ears. They need their stories to be told. And so I want you to talk about what happens when people come into your nonprofit. Like when someone says, I want to be a part of this movement, what does it look like when somebody comes into a prison for the first time and dispels some of these myths I bet you know people are thinking about and maybe starting to organically bring up in their head about why it would be difficult or why I shouldn't go or why it wouldn't be safe. Take us through that process.
2: Yeah, no, thanks, Becky. And I completely agree um, with your setup there and your, your worldview, honestly, about everybody mattering and about the need to avoid, whether it's cancel culture or frankly, whether it's um, banishment from society through incarceration yeah. where people are effectively obliterated. And one of the things with American prisons is that on the one hand, they are they're everywhere. I mean, in the 1990s, there was a prison opening every 10 days.
0: Oklahoma the is the Oklahoma's has the leader. most female incarcerated yeah. prisoners in the country. Yeah. Think about what that has done to, to their children. I mean, it's just mind boggling. Yeah,
2: yeah. Well, Oklahoma and Louisiana are always neck and neck. Um, D.C., if it were a state, would actually be the highest in terms of incarceration rates. Mm. Um, but so you can drive up and down any highway and probably within a few miles somewhere, there's a prison. And when I say there's a prison, I just want to also be direct and perhaps graphic about it, which is that there are human beings who are locked in cages, right, who are in cages with bars and can't open them and are locked in the way zoo animals are. And there's such an outrage about the mistreatment of animals, which I share. I want to make clear I'm a big proponent also of animal rights. But we almost forget about human rights for incarcerated people. And I think if there was an understanding of the conditions that people have to live in, in prison, the way it comes out sometimes when there's mistreatment of animals, there would be an uproar. Yeah. In a way, that's what I'm trying to get people to appreciate, although not necessarily in a revolutionary way, more in a, in a humanizing way. But so you, you go, there are prisons everywhere, but at the same time, they might as well be on Mars. Because they're so separate. These boundaries, these walls, you can drive by and see and go, oh, that looks like a prison. But you can't go inside. And everything that goes on inside is separate. It's its own little universe of sorts. And so they're both everywhere and nowhere at the same time. And so what I am trying to do is to basically break down that barrier by connecting outside members of free society to incarcerated people in a way that's never been done before, or it was very rare, or maybe it was an individual visit with a family member and a visiting room. you look around and you see other people. But I'm talking about real conversation, real fellowship, real coming together. And so what we do in the Frederick Douglass Project for Justice, the Douglass Project for short, we bring people inside and it's open to anybody. It's an open sign-up process, Douglassproject.org. Is our website?
0: We'll have it in sign the show up for notes. a prison
2: visit. I'll talk in a bit about where we're operating and where we're expanding because we're expanding very rapidly now that the COVID restrictions have been removed. But the idea is that anyone, whether they're just you know they read a book, they read Just Mercy or saw the movie, or they're in you know a club, or they're law students, or they're in a church. We have a lot of uh, church groups, diff- all in different denominations, or. You know, they they might be in a company that is interested in bringing its employees in and having a dedicated visit, but we bring people inside. It's always a safe environment. We also know our inside participants and choose them and work with partner organizations that get us good people who are really engaged and ready to talk. And we bring our outside members in. We prepare them. There's a training video that they watch, a 20-minute or so, where they make sure that they understand that it's it's a solemn place that you need to be going in with respect, um, not treating it like a zoo tour or some voyeuristic experience. But then we bring people together in a in a big circle. Everyone's nervous at first, you know, especially people going in for the very first time. They're looking around, you know. You can just sort of see that, like the the, the hair standing on end, that there's this sort of tension in the room, and then we have everybody sit mixed together in a big circle. And we start with introductions and icebreakers and we go around the room and we have different questions that we ask people that are kind of reflective. It's never about someone's crime or their time. And it's also not about for people on the outside where they work or what their job title is or all the kind of resume stuff that people are used to talking about on the outside that frankly is really superficial. Right. And often a little bit misleading where people are just trying to impress each other all the time. And it's going deep, like, you know, who do you define as family or, you know, what's the best piece of advice you ever received? And people start talking about their family in a way. And then they start realizing that whether they're incarcerated or not, that they're very similar values, very similar types of structures around them that support them. And they start realizing that there's so much more that unites them than divides them. And so we do this for about 30 minutes of introductions where people are talking a little bit about themselves. Again, not in a superficial way, but about who they really are. And then we go into small groups of about six people per group, roughly. It's always an even mix of inside and outside participants. And that's where the magic really happens. That's where people go really deep in their conversations. We have another set of questions and we rotate the questions around so it's always fresh for the inside participants. And for the outside visitors, they're just blown away. It's one of these things where we try to prepare people, but ultimately it's about having the experience that really matters. And they suddenly sit across from somebody. And I want you to just picture this, that you're sitting across from someone who's in a prison uniform who starts saying, my mom passed away last year and I wasn't able to go to her funeral. (sighs) And you think about how heavy that is. Or my younger brother was shot and killed. Or, you know, some of the, some of the, just the pain and suffering that you think, oh my God, if that happened to me, I would be devastated. And to be in prison and not to be able to grieve and to be connected is just heartbreaking, right? And that's where the empathy comes in because seeing somebody is so much more powerful even than a screen. And that is more, you know, watching a video or whatever, that's more powerful than reading a book or than hearing someone talk about it or something. So we want to, we, we get people together to have these experiences and to realize that ultimately, if we care about somebody, we're going to look at this whole problem differently. And that, that's really what my goal is for the Douglas Project is to get people to care about incarcerated people the way they would care about their own brother or sister or son or daughter. And that's how I feel. And I know it sounds weird, but like I've been to prisons all across the country, including several in Oklahoma, by the way. And we can talk about some people I'm very close to there. One is Julius Jones, who came within three hours of being executed for a crime he didn't commit, by the way, and someone I, I, I speak to regularly and, and, and have visited and care deeply about. But everywhere I go, I see people and I feel for them and I care for them as if they were my brother or sister. And I want others to have that opportunity. I don't think it's something magical power that I have. Maybe I have a above average sense of empathy. I don't know, but I've found especially the structural way to come into contact with people and now a way to bring others into contact with people. And that empathy spreads exponentially in those situations. And that's what I'm trying to continue doing. And I would just say to anybody, you know, whether it's the both of you or to anybody listening to come visit a prison, take this leap of faith. And I don't just want it for people who are already on board and who are, you know, opposed to mass incarceration. Who you know, are sort of the choir, so to speak. I want this to be for someone who's never thought about it. I also want it to be for people who've been victims of crime in their family. I've had that experience multiple times, bringing people in and it's really, really hard, but suddenly they see it in a completely different way. Because when you see the person as a human being, it's very different from seeing someone as a monster, seeing someone as subhuman, as non-human. When you see them as human, you suddenly care about them. And then when they see you as human, then it just, that's where the magic really takes place is that it goes in both directions. I mean, wow. So I think you're sharing a lot of
1: things today that just like register on our values in such a deep way, Mark. I mean, we talk about community is everything and we believe it in our bones. And I think as we think about pushing down walls, I mean, the community that you're creating in and outside of some of the thickest walls in our country, it gives me chills to think about of how that could change the way we all show up. This idea of proximity is just so critical to being able to be informed citizens. And I even think of my own experience of just leaving the country and for the first time ever meeting somebody that's not from you know where you grew up, the power of that experience and understanding that we do have the same values in life and we still do you know center a lot of the same things is just transformational. So I love mm-hmm. that. I would just ask you, what has changed in you from this experience? I mean, this, you can't be proximate to, to these kind of stories and this experience and not be really moved. How has it shifted you as a person and share a little bit of the impact that you've seen coming out of this work?
2: Yeah. Uh, I just want to add to your point, John, about going to other countries because I do feel, I never thought of it before that way, but, you know, one, having grown up in two countries, two cultures, I think always made me kind of, um, searching to understand crossing boundaries figuring out people trying to put it in a context that makes sense to them when i when i was comfortable in two different contexts that were altogether yeah. separate and then i also spent a lot of time um, living in, in germany and in russia and learning those languages and struggling with language and 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 to understand people I think actually, in a way, has shaped what I do, even though now everything I do is, is pretty much US focused. But so, thank you for giving me that insight. Yeah, so, in terms of how it's changed me, you know, I think sometimes I consider myself some kind of Forrest Gump in this space where things just happen to me. And I don't know if I'm giving some kind of a radar where people approach me and open up to me. But honestly, there's an example of it just yesterday. I'm walking down the street having gotten off the metro in downtown DC, and I see somebody kind of looking confused and lost. And it's true that in my life, I've always had a lot of people ask me for directions. I don't know for whatever reason.
0: You got that face. You're a magnet. Apparently. You look look like you (laughs) You know what you're doing.
2: (laughs) And this guy asks me for an address. And then I realize what he's talking about is the address where um, you have to first report for parole and probation in DC. And it's about five blocks away from where we were. And I never want to impose on people. And I always respect their story, their space, their timing and so on. But something in the way we were speaking, and it was really sweet. And as I'm literally giving directions, I'm looking on Google maps, I'm showing to him, he's looking at my phone like it's a foreign object. And I'm like, this guy just came home.
0: Aww. And I ask
2: him very gently. And I think I may have said, Welcome home. It was kind of a a soft way of saying, I I understand. And he said, This was yesterday, Wednesday. He says, On Monday, I just got out of prison after 25 years. This is a random person on the street coming up to me. And it turns out we know all these people in common because through my work, I know all of these people. He was a juvenile lifer, we knew like dozens of people in common. I see you tearing up, Becky. It's just a powerful stuff. It was incredible. And, you know, I was able to guide him, of course, but we were able to connect and I gave him my info and I'm going to see him. And I I just, you know, and I hugged him and I said, welcome home. And he got out actually in Florida. On Monday, he's in Florida. And this was his first day in DC where he grew up and he's trying to find out where he is. And and I'm the one that he asks. (laughs) It was just, it was incredible. Um, Wow. And I think it's just an illustration of what happens to me a lot, which is that I think that something in the way that I interact with people, whether they're still in prison or whether they've come home from prison, basically just says, I love you. Honestly, like I care about you. I see you. And I want, not that I'm in any way trying to pat myself on the back, because this is not about me. I feel that in a way I'm a vessel for the people who, are voiceless who are invisible to try to get others to care about them and i'm using in a way my privilege my access to try to open doors that otherwise have stayed closed but what i feel is that it's an, it's an obligation in a way it's a responsibility i have this i don't know what it is this this platform this ability this this situation in my life now and i feel i need to make it expand And allow other people to feel that, to have other people. I mean, think about it. The average person meeting somebody who just got out of prison two days earlier after 25 years would run. Oh my God, like it's terrifying. He probably took someone's life. I don't know, but the odds are most likely yes. And I hug him and embrace him and welcome him home. And I want more people to do that. I want more people to see the humanity. And I felt such a great energy coming from him. And I do from so many people. They want to succeed. They want to be productive members of society. They want to never see the inside of a jail cell again. They want to 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 be positive. They want to help others. When I talk to people inside, so often I hear stories about what they want to do. And it's always helping others. It's, it's atoning in a way for their mistakes, for the harm they caused, to actually reverse harm, to prevent harm right, preemptively. And so whether it's in the work I'm doing inside through the Georgetown programs where we have a bachelor's degree program in a prison, we have credit bearing courses at the DC jail or through our re-entry programs where we've had nearly now 100 people graduate with Georgetown certificates in either paralegal studies or business and entrepreneurship, they're all employed. Some have started businesses that no one's back in prison. I really believe that if we can see them as human beings and we can treat them with respect and give them opportunity and some preparation, that they're going to succeed. They're going to make us proud. They certainly make me proud. And I just want as many people as possible to have that experience, to meet them, to hire them, to be willing to open doors, to be willing to support them, to believe in them. And we will eliminate crime or certainly seriously decrease it and costs, and we'll just make our society such a better place. I think we can do it. I think this tool of proximity and connection and love is the way to do it. And I think it's actually a service to victims of crime because victims of crime want more than anything, whether it's surviving victims or family members, is to prevent this from happening to anyone again. They don't necessarily want to inflict pain and suffering. Sometimes they do in the immediate emotion of it. But I think we can get to a place of of rehabilitation, to a place of forgiveness, to a place of compassion and a place of love.
0: I mean, Mark, what you just shared there is the very lifeblood of philanthropy. It is the love of mankind. It yeah. literally comes back to that simplicity. You know, and and I am so glad that you're here. I'm so glad that you're born and in this world. I'm so glad you followed that gut instinct that, w- that said, I need to go see Marty because I think back, Mark, and I'm still emotional, so I'm probably going to cry as I get through this, mm-hmm. but I think about you walking in to see Marty, and I think about everything that's come after that, and I think about my new good friend, J.J. Velasquez, mm-hmm. who went into prison With a three-year-old child and a five-week-old child, and didn't come out for twenty-three years. JJ Velasquez, who is your program director uh, in New York at the Frederick Douglass Project for Justice,
2: uh,
0: I mean, you cannot walk away from these stories and not feel changed. And so, I just want to add another bold line under proximity, community, compassion, and love these are the answers. And I can tell you that we have seen the proof of that in this community and the way people open up and come in with an open hand and an open mind and they link arms and they move faster because you check ego and judgment at the front door and it allows us to move much faster. And I am so glad we talked about this today. And the only other thing I just want to throw on the top is the absolute disproportionate number of people of color and people in poverty In prisons. And we've got to fight for equity. We've got to get those stories out. We have covered this many times on the podcast with Sue Ann Arnall and the Arnall Foundation talking about mass incarceration in Oklahoma. Melissa C. Potter came on and talked about meeting her husband while building a documentary around him trying to run the New York City Marathon in honor of his father who had been incarcerated for 50 years in New York. And so there are stories that are nestled in all of this friends. I'm sure many of you have a story or a person you were thinking about, but Mark Howard, thank you for honoring Marty. I'm so glad you went to lovey-dovey preschool (laughs) together and it could have spawned all of this because we believe in the power of movements. So we end all of our podcasts with a one good thing. And I wonder. What is the one good thing that you would offer up to our community today? And I would add a twofer on there and say, how can this community be a part of your movement? How can we activate into it? Where do you need us?
2: Mm -hmm. Thank you, Becky, John. It's been great talking with you. You know, I think it's important to take people where they are. And I never want to force somebody into something they're not comfortable with. Yeah. So... If just listening is enough to move somebody, that's fine too. But I think that when people are moved to action, I think that I can guarantee that it will be so rewarding. And so for those who are maybe hesitant but curious or tempted to join us on a prison visit, it can be a virtual prison visit, which I know sounds strange, (laughs) but we have two hour conversations with the group of incarcerated people every single week, every time there are tears, there are emotions. Um, these men who are in Colorado, who speak with members of the public throughout the country, throughout the world are, are so powerful. And I just ask that people, whether it's through their philanthropy, whether it's through their feet or through their screens, but they they open their hearts to the recognition that people are greater than the worst thing they've ever done, that people can change. And not only that, but they can actually become forces for good. Hmm. And so I ask that people take that leap of faith with me. Trust me. I say this not in any proselytizing way, not in any No agenda whatsoever. It will be so rewarding. I've had this experience now with thousands of people, and there are tens of thousands more as the Douglas Project grows who will be coming inside. We're now operating regularly in Colorado, Florida, Louisiana, DC, New York. We're going to be starting soon in Arizona, California, Connecticut. Ohio, Michigan, many other places to come. And I hope Oklahoma will join that list. We're expanding rapidly. This model works. It works for outside visitors every single time. It changes the lives of our inside participants for the better. They reconnect with their families, with society, with their lives as humans. But it also is good for correctional leaders because it makes people positive and it's spreading goodness on the inside. And so our formula works. And I hope that you and other listeners will join us, whether it's virtually or in person and not for our sake. And I hope that none of what you've heard today makes you focus on me. I'm just this, this vessel for others, but that you open your heart to them. And I hope that this conversation has helped in that way. And I've really enjoyed talking with you both and thank you for the opportunity.
0: Yeah, Mark, I mean, I just think you're an incredible human and I, I don't often do this, but I'm going to do it today. I have a one good thing that I'd like to throw out there because we need to recognize that we have incredible privilege simply by having this microphone and having this platform. And I want to throw out my one good thing that if you feel inspired by this, I want you to look up Tremaine Wood. He is a wrongfully incarcerated individual in Oklahoma. And ironically, you mentioned Julius Jones. They have the exact same attorney. And he is on death row. And he has been convicted of a crime he didn't commit. And there is overwhelming evidence. And he needs a community of voices to come up. And so if you want to help one person find a way to get involved in Tremaine Wood's case and let's get some noise around saving human beings' lives. So thank you, Mark, and thanks for letting me add on one, my, one more of my good thing.
1: I mean, there's just so much from this conversation that I think everybody has things to consider from this and just how you can get involved and active. But I know, Mark, I'm sitting here of like, how can people get connected with you all and the incredible team that you have? Point us to all the ways that y'all show up and where to best connect with you personally.
2: Well, the douglasproject.org is our website. I'm also on Twitter, Instagram, Mark M. Howard. And, you know, I get, I get mail from people in prison. I get contacted by family members. I have a great team at Georgetown at the Prisons and Justice Initiative, also in the Frederick Douglas Project for Justice. We try to always put forth the, the voices, stories of incarcerated people and their families so I look forward to many more conversations to come, whether it's for people on the inside or the outside and ideally bringing them together to discover our common humanity.
0: Please go check out these social channels. Check out the website. I, From a marketing standpoint, <laughs> I want to commend you because the photos on your website and your social channels are so humane and warm and disruptive. And there are stories in here that will move your heart if you want to go further. So Mark... Keep going you. with your incredible work. Thank you for the way that you have opened our hearts and minds today. We're your allies in this and just rooting for you in every possible way.
2: Thank you. And I'll add my own website, markmhoward.org. Go check it, it out. With a C. So grateful. Thank you, my friend.
0: You're a treasure of a human. Thank you for the time.
2: Thank you so much. I enjoyed it.